0: Hi there, it's Daniel Schwartzman, co-host of A Positive Jam. Welcome to Season 2, focusing on Separation Sunday, the second album by The Hold Steady. We cover their first album, Almost Killed Me, in Season 1, and it's a great debut and actually my favorite Hold Steady album. But Separation Sunday is a real breakthrough, and probably the better album. Fuller sound, more confident songwriting, and a lyrical narrative that connects for a bigger meaning without losing its track-by-track and line-by-line momentum. If this is your first time listening, we're glad to have you. Know that on a positive jam, we go through each song on the given album, track by track. That starts from the get-go with Hornets Hornets kicking the door down on Separation Sunday as the first song, setting the stage for the album musically, lyrically, and emotionally. Here's Sean Westfall, our lead host for Season 2, to kick us off in the same way.
1: She says, always remember, never to trust me.
2: Ah, she said that the first night that she met me. And she said, there's gonna come a time when I'm gonna have to go with whoever's gonna get me the highest.
1: Hello, everyone. Season two, episode one of A Positive Jam, our deep track-by-track dive into the sophomore class project of the Hold Steady Separation Sunday. I'm Sean Westfall, and I'm going to be host for you all this season, something that last season's hosts, Dan Schwartzman and Mike Taylor, all too generously asked me to do for reasons that pass this understanding, but for which I am eternally grateful and honored. So thank you both for doing this. I'm honored to be heading up here. So, Hornets, Hornets, side one, track one. Consider the needle on the album here. We are on side one, track one. Dan, Mike, tell me what your like top-level thoughts are about anything from musicality to lyrics. Tell us where you want to start. I'm Mike. In terms of the musicality, I think one thing we're going to come
2: back to a lot on Separation Sunday is the more fleshed-out, sort of more expansive musical range that the whole study achieves in this in this album at least compared to their debut almost killed me what's notable to me about this song first off is just the prominence of the the keyboards which kind of are bouncing off of the guitar throughout and sort of this kind of ambient constant drone often of of the keys it sounds like they're using a one of those like Leslie speakers or something that rotates around and creates this kind of echoing in and out, phasing in and out, undulating sound on the keys, which I think is pretty cool and is sort of vintage 70s thing, coherent with the their mission seemingly to revive sort of 70s classic rock. Structurally, I think what's interesting about the riffs are that they kind of are all iterations on a similar thing so this walking up walking down is <laughs> very propulsive and moving forward a lot and kind of rhythmically interesting and also suitable to an opening track and then my other observation kind of about the guitar melodies is that the bridge has this three-note sort of lighter, more melodic sounding, ringing out a little bit more. Beam, do do And first of all, Tad Kubler seems to do a lot of just three-note finger exercises that make their way into Hold steady songs. Curves and Nerves is an example of that. It's just something that seems to come up over and over again, this sort of 3 three-note pattern. Finally, I think that the final closing out riff is a, this sort of harmonizing sort of ste- actually Steely Dan and thin Lizzie, these kind of harmonizing guitar. Right.
1: Right. 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 At the uh, end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So,
2: so there's echoes of that, I think in the closing riff, which, which also mirrors the opening riff and it's right. kind of a, a play on the same thing. So there's a lot of this song does the same, a different version of the same thing over and over again, which I think is kind of interesting. Daniel, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I think you drilled into a lot of things. I think on the big picture, what Hornets Hornets does, we obviously love Almost Killed Me and it was a good, great first album and kind of, it was a rough album, right? It wasn't super polished. And Hornets Hornets does, I think, two things as an establishing shot right away, which is one is it's clear it's connected to almost kill me in the sense of the lyrics are sharp. I mean, just great lines throughout pop culture references, though, not as abundant as on the Swish, for example. But there's still definitely a lot of pop culture. There's that song got scratched in our soul. So there's making a callback to certain songs. And at the same time, the fidelity and the thoughtfulness of the music is just up a couple levels. You think of the all the things Mike said, and it's just really, even at that fade out, even if it is a repetitive riff, it's really well thought out. It's not Tad Cooper rocking out on most people or DJs until it cuts off. And the bridge, they did not have, they had some middle eighths or B sections. On almost kill me but a bridge like this that is musical and melodic and on the hold steadies they have a podcast called I think it's called positive jams or something Mm -hmm. similar where they talk about their first two albums and I think Craig described that whether it was with Franz or with somebody else as like a holy shit we can play Layla and it can actually sound like a Layla type moment and that's where you know that piano just starts hammering Right, right. I think it's more notable on other songs on this album, but that coming here, I think is really, like this is not going to be, there's gonna be the stuff you love, but it's not going to be just the same. It's not Almost Killed Me, part two. Right,
2: they like decide to embrace, this is the, they're starting to embrace the grandiosity of seventies rock in a way that they sort of started. They talked about how almost killed me, like letting Tad go solo into the end of most people are DJs, I think, and just go for so long was like, their big, like, this will be hilarious and fun and, and just great like rock and roll that we're not hearing right now. And then I think there's a further step in that direction. Like Daniel said with Layla or something like that to get, to get even like a little bit, deeper in that direction and have it's like yes it's it is and was a little cheesy but there's just so much more to play with if you go there with by adding sort of a clever beautiful bridge as and all of this as counterpoint to the still very rough craig's vocal delivery is still much more on the shouty side of things which i find appealing
1: right you know you both hit on something that i think is just profoundly obvious with the hold steady which is oh thanks <laughs> no i i'm i I, yeah i mean this is a band that on almost killed me lyrically had a lot of ideas right i mean there's a lot of ideas there's a lot of stuff going on and i think that with separation sunday with the addition of franz and with the self-knowledge the band gained in making that album they realized that they could actually they have a lot of ideas musically now there, there are songs within songs. There are bridges within bridges. There are fun, cool digressions that happen in almost every Hold Steady song going forward, from Separation Sunday on out. They just they have this wider musical palette now, and the musical palette can can keep up with the lyrical stuff that's happening in, in Craig's head. He can the, the band can do more. They have more tools in their arsenal now. I also want to jump into like. Daniel mentioned this as an
2: opening track or an establishing shot, and I think it's a little interesting to think of it that way in the context of Almost Killed Me Again. So Daniel mentioned when we were talking earlier about this is a stab at the epic, and I think one thing that jumps out at me, I'm probably going to get this wrong because I never went to grad school for literature, but it's a kind of in medias rest opening in terms of they start right away. She says, always remember, never to trust me, which is like they're plunging you right into the action right away, which is like what happens in the Iliad. And Craig, as a literary guy, is probably cognizant of that. And the whole album, it it serves the whole album, which is this coherent storyline concept album and works really well in that way because it just, okay, here's a character and there's a long arc. She said that the first time that me, she met me. So it's like, we're going to have a long relationship with the, between and among all these different people. And also, I went to Genius.com, which is always kind of a weird sort of self-conscious step of, of the process to look at the lyrics and see what people are saying about them. And I noticed something that I never noticed before, which is Almost Killed Me is the 80s Almost Killed Me. And there's Positive Jam, which starts, but then Swish is kind of the opening track that's a real first song and all the pop culture references we talked about before are are from the 70s in the swish they're all from the 80s in hornets hornets so i think it's interesting that we kind of have this shift from we're going to explore this 70s pop culture stuff to we're going to go into the period that almost killed me that we heard about on on that album and sort of this is the meat of the drama this is like we're going to get deep into the drama here. The one other thing about, which I never, I never thought about this before I read the genius thing, but it's like that some people think that this song establishes the action in the mid eighties or late eighties as that, that this story is taking place at that time, which I never, I don't know if it's really all that relevant, but I, I always thought it was just taking place whenever it's like timeless to me, the setting and setting doesn't really matter all that much. But I thought it was interesting that people have gravitated towards trying to pin down exactly when and where all this stuff happens. It's not a big concern of mine, but I think it was interesting that maybe there are some clues there with the Kate Bush and the, the Bones Brigade references that it's actually that's when it's happening. Sean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that the you make a great point about the opening tracks of both those albums, right? Almost Killed Me starts out with, you know, the positive jam and walks you through this huge, as you just said, epic, you know, decade by decade, right? And I guess that's where it started, we got tangled up in gas lines, right? Whereas you're right, lyrically, we're focusing on one main character in Separation Sunday. We're going to follow Holly, who the kids, you know, the, the, her parents named her Hallelujah, though as She takes this journey into the subculture of her era, which I think you and Genius.com are accurate when they say it's sometime in the '80s, late '80s, early '90s. And you know, we see her fall, and then we see, you know, by the end of the album, when we maybe getting a little ahead of, ahead of ourselves. We see her, oh, you know, struggling towards redemption as she walks through the Easter Mass on Broken Glass. If we can think of Almost Killed Me as War and Peace we can think of Separation Sunday as Anna Karenina. It's going to focus on one character, right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: The other argument, the relevant point, Mike, you brought this up in our notes. Hornets is the mascot of Adina High, which is where Craig, I think, went to high school. And... Quick correction, Craig Finn went to Breck for high school, a private school in the Minneapolis area affiliated with the Episcopal Church, not a Catholic school. Back to the show. That's also the last line is about drove the wrong way down 169 and almost died up by Edina High. And so I don't know how much it'll come up this season. Last season we talked a lot about how much does Craig how much is coming from Craig's experience as a lyricist? But this feels like you're at a high school party your people are knocking on the door again, callbacks to certain songs. There's callbacks that remind me of the lifter puller era, but it's also just that this feels like high school, right? This feels like people talking a lot and yeah. So I think that's a supporting element to Mike's premise here.
1: Yeah. And again, I think this is where it's appropriate for me to sort of try to kick off my theory that this is our generation's wasteland, that this is sort of Craig Finn's answer to T.S. Eliot.
0: Wasted by the Wasteland.
1: The album is 10 tracks long, and the cantos of the Wasteland are, there's only six of them, so it doesn't track perfectly where every song is sort of a direct echo. But you can see these things occurring in at least, you know, if you put, if you put hornets, hornets, and Canto One of the Wasteland side by side, you know a lot of it is going to be. You can't fit all of the Wasteland into one song. You can't fit all of Canto One into one song. But there are some similarities. Towards the middle of Canto One of the Wasteland, we meet Madame Sosostris, who was who was clairvoyant, and clairvoyance not only makes an appearance here, and and prophecy not only makes an appearance here, but clairvoyance and prophecy are important themes in. Hold steady lyrics to come. You know, the opening lines is, she said, always remember, never to trust me. She said, there's going to come a time, you know, so this is her prophesizing what's going to happen. This is Hallelujah, Holly prophesizing what's going to happen. So she's acting a lot like Madame Sesostris. And then at the end of Canto One, Elliot takes us through this deep dive of of the unreal city, right? And the sort of desiccated, dissipated images that sort of appeal in this unreal city, which is, and they're dark, full of death images. And of course, the last line of this song, as Dan just pointed out, is I almost died down near Edina High. So I think there are plenty of parallels that sort of make this sort of Craig Finn's answer to The Wasteland. And what a great way of talking, of updating The Wasteland, of putting it in Middle America in with, you know, a bunch of kids who, as Elliot would talk about, have these pieces of culture, you know, they, they live inside this fishbowl, of, not fishbowl, they live inside the whale of culture, but they don't understand it all. But these pieces keep coming to them, like they, these fragments. She mouth the words along to running up that hill, you know, those Bulge Brigade videos, these snippets of culture that at the, at this point don't make sense to them because they've lost their meaning. They've been brought outside that that context. But they're there, right? And, and Elliot talks about how culture operates on us and how much of it has been lost and all we retain are the fragments. You know, the 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 the, the godhead has exploded and we are the parts. Yeah, I just I just see tons of this stuff. I could I I will stop talking. <laughs> Please comment or ignore what I've just said. But I, I welcome your thoughts here.
2: Well, I think that the unreal city. Parallel is a good one, and I—I I mean, it's like the backbone of the whole study's subject matter. Is that there's always a sort of underbelly everywhere, and you have that here really effectively and concisely established. With the I like the guy who always answers the door, always knows what you came to his house for. So he just, I like the not quite coming out and saying what's happening, but very clearly establishing. A sort of sinister stuff going underneath the surface, and obviously some of the you know the Humbert Humbert Lolita reference and some of the other stuff is is much more sort of explicit and direct about how gnarly things are. But I, especially when I was getting into this band, that just felt so good to have someone being focused on this type of material. I don't know why, make catharsis, or maybe I just there's something. Maybe I'm just as a listener or personally, a person who's always been sort of, despite living a very straight and narrow, wholesome life, always being sort of tempted or drawn to the more dangerous or bad kid type of behavior. And I I think that this just like tickles that nerve for just about every person sort of has that desire to sort of look at what things are like in the rough parts of town or, or what it would be like to be sort of a bad kid or, or go down the wrong path, because it's not something you necessarily will let yourself access in real life, but that is very fun to explore kind of when you're listening to rock music, at least.
0: There's also the, again, the music with the, we talked about the repeating say cycling guitar lines and also organ sound which the organ, it's not quite a Hammond organ, but it reminds you of those like Blonde on Blonde or right. Early Springsteen, the sound a little bit.
2: Oh, like, but, like a Rolling Stone?
0: Yeah, like yeah. Just, just that sort of, that tone, and it's almost a funhouse sound, but also the way they do it leaves you just a trace of it being sinister, just a trace of it being, this isn't fun in games, like there's it could go either way is what i think i come up because this you know most there's she slept with so many skaters humbert humbert that i have to really try so hard not to fall in love i've there's an element of bad stuff coming but the heavy stuff ain't quite at its heaviest on this track like there's still we know that it's going to get gnarlier but
2: well also and just with the organ which i think is important churches use organs And even though it's not always the same sound as that, there is that echoing, undulating tonality and the droning type of tonality in church organs. And sometimes they do have that. There are electric organs people use in churches. Anyway, I think there is like a a sort of interplay between that sinister and ecclesiastical with the, the organ that sort of mirrors nicely the subject matter of the music.
1: Right. And we've talked in the past about how the opening lines go in one ear, left ear, left right, left, right, left, right. She said, always remember never to trust me. And that's call and response. That's straight out of church call and response stuff. So I think you're you're right to focus on the organ and the musicality as setting this quasi holy, quasi sinister tone
0: also baseball stadiums have organs (laughs) that's not as significant but craig we know is a devout baseball fan matt brooks talked about that last season and the last track makes a baseball just it's not as serious but just it's it's also like uh the sacred and the secular
2: he basically built his life around organs (laughs) yeah You finally found it's like, this has everything that I'm all about, touches it at least.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, how, how many sports, we were talking about sports writers before the week actually recording and how many sports casters have talked about baseball stadiums as cathedrals, right? As Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: So. Also a very, not to beat this too much, also a very Catholic area of our yeah. culture. True, 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 true.
2: Wait, how? Wait. Baseball? Baseball. Baseball is Catholic?
0: In the sense that it's very.
2: (laughs) I was raised Catholic, so it's No, but like in the sense,
0: it's very rules based. It's very. Oh. There's a lot of debates of what's in school. I I was just reading a biography of Jim Boughton, who famously was a heretic to the church. Ball four. He wrote Ball four, which essentially got him excommunicated from baseball for. Exactly.
2: He's a baseball heretic? Yes. <laughs> That's a great punk band name, the Baseball Heretics. <laughs> right? It's good. Yeah. So anyway, Daniel, so he wrote that book. and
0: so He was, you know, essentially excommunicated for sharing the secrets of baseball, for talking about what really happened in the game. And, you know, with the whole... There's just lots of old school, new school. It's just a sport that always the unspoken seems... unspoken
2: rules, all the traditions and rituals,
0: standing up and sitting down. And the, the scandals,
1: much, right? Yeah. The scandals, Ed and Balco. I mean, if baseball doesn't track along with the Catholic Church, I don't know what does, for God's sake.
0: <laughs> Very much for God's sake.
1: Good. Good point. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you.
0: What do you guys... What are people's favorite lines in this song? Because I just feel like it's so. We talked about the music, but the one liners or the couplets here are really. It's almost like they could spin off into their own theses, half of them.
1: Absolutely.
2: The thing that hits me the hardest is I guess the heavy stuff ain't quite as heavy as by the time it gets out to suburban Minneapolis. And that's, I mean, it's on genius.com. Someone else said it. So I think this is probably a pretty common reaction and not necessarily overly unique on my part, but I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I did get a sense, especially in junior high and high school, I would go out to the East coast to visit family. And some of my cousins just like knew a little bit more about what was going on. The music that they were listening to was like a little bit more current. And I'm not even really sure why. It's not like you have to ship a new album by horse or something, you know? They didn't have, like, Inca messengers running across the hills with, like, the latest Green Day album or whatever. But for whatever reason, there does seem to be a kind of lag and it. I guess maybe it's also just, like, conservatism of the Midwestern disposition. And then it's a drug reference, too. So I think because it has that multi-layered meaning to it, and also that, like, even maybe the... It feels watered down, that your experiences feel watered down in the Midwest versus other places you could be. It also comes at the like a musical climax of the song. And it's really fun to shout along in the in the the show. So I think that's
0: it for me. Well, I just to jump on that, because I was thinking about this earlier. We had the guys from Minneapolis on last season, too. And I just feel like. That this is a pre-internet album to go back to the time reference, both in terms of this is, comes out in two thousand five. The internet is around, but you're still, we're still not really flat yet the way we are now, where we can work from anywhere, et cetera. But also, just that's where I hear that is just like yeah, there is a actual physical distance, and again, Minneapolis is sort of the last fringe of real urbanity, I think, until Seattle. So I guess if they were from Montana or you know Idaho yeah, or whatever billing,
2: our Billings and Missoula and Spokane listeners are probably going to write in <laughs> with some words for you Daniel but
0: I I know yeah I would love to hear where I, We'd love to hear from you yeah. <laughs> yeah please please get in touch but no but no Fargo I I used to go the Fargo Dome hosts one of the biggest high school wrestling tournaments in the country every summer and so I went out there twice or two or three times in high school and then Two or three times in college as a coach or just after college. And it's out there. And it's just like you feel, even though now with the internet, things are it's easier to just kinda get connected to it. I think there's that physical distance makes a difference. And that's yeah, that's what that line also is a reminder of. Little did we know.
2: Legus well, the heavy stuff, ain't quite it's well, the time it gets
1: out to suburban Minneapolis. And, and as someone who grew up in Indiana, I, uh, in, in the 80s, I can verify that, that when I joined the military and got stationed on the East Coast, I met a bunch of guys who were well and deep into punk rock and, and hardcore. You know, I, I knew a guy who was really into Black Flag and Henry Rollins. And, you know, this is what I had to try to impress upon him. Like, in Indiana, punk never happened. Reo Speedwagon was still selling out arenas when I was in high school. It just didn't occur. If the weather was good, you could pick up college radio from Bloomington and occasionally hear some of these tracks. But it just the heavy stuff never got out to, yeah. to, to suburban Minneapolis nor Southern Indiana. As someone who grew up there, even this countercultural figure in in Hallelujah or
2: these people, I mean, they're still running up that hill is the song that they're right referencing here, which is is about as, un- I mean, it's it's great. And I would even spend some time on it here and spend some time on Kate Bush here. But it's not punk. It's not like, doesn't fit with what what these people are about, but they're still, it's still playing at the party.
1: Yeah, and I think the interesting part of that lyric is that the guy she's talking to totally misses the reference, right? Oh yeah, the song's about people changing places, which isn't what the song Running Up the Hill is about at all. And I think that gets back to what I was saying about how, these snippets, these pieces of culture reach us and we don't know what to make of them. We contextualize them as best we can and they, they get lost and their actual true meaning gets lost as well. Oh, good. then let's,
2: let's do it. I want to hear what you what you think Running Up That Hill is about, Sean. It's been a couple of years since I've heard the song. All right, well, let's tell, you what, t- tell me what you think it's about. I think it's, a, I think, okay. So I think Kate Bush is this kind of paradigmatic romantic in the literary sense and also in kind of just Who she is. Like her music videos are like her her first single was about weathering heights, for God's sake. So she's so she's this romantic figure in like a very sort of pointed and unusual way that makes her seem almost sort of inhuman in the 20th century. Her music videos have interpretive dance, and she's just sort of this like creative and poetic force in a way that a lot of pop performers really just aren't ever. And she's kind of ethereal quality to her music and ethereal quality to, like, herself with this, like, mass of this mane of curly hair. And, and costumes and identity. She's always playing with costumes and identity. right? She's And there's a lot of, like, I mean, it was the 80s, so it's not as unusual as it was today, but a lot of leotards and, like, sort of form-fitting stuff going on. And so she just she fits into this mold that is like not all that common today, but I feel like I've encountered throughout my life of a kind of a romantic, poetic woman who has this sort of more grand idea of what love is artistically and physically and sort of psychically and is sort of this weird like if you look into the eyes of people who are like this, they sort of are like seeker type. And like, look, you don't really feel necessarily like you're operating on the same plane of existence. And I think running up that hill is about love and about exchanging souls during the process of love making or the process of falling in love. makes this a very rich reference and you know the the other person sort of like yeah i heard hey, yeah people switch places yeah that happens Is like hallelujah is like a kate bush it's scratching to her soul she's like this this figure who is who's like this who is going to be out there and seeking much more out of life and romance and love than maybe even is practically available and so I actually, I mean, I've thought a lot about this and I've thought <laughs> a, a, a little bit about, we were talking about people, you know, dating and, and the people we've dated in the past. And I've, I've dated one or two people who are like this and it's a it's a different and more sort of, for me anyway, like volatile experience. Mm-hmm. These, these types of high passion romantics. I think that's what a, a lot of the album is about is like, what does it mean to be a romantic and to try and live your life that way?
1: Right, I, I think that's a great way of, I think it's an exceptional way, A, an excellent interpretation of, of Kate Bush and running up running up a hill. But also, I think it's no accident that, that it's a great way of connecting Kate to, to Holly. And I think it's no accident that we're going to follow her on this journey, that we're going to... Again, I think that line, she has to really try so hard not to fall in love. Not She doesn't have to try so hard to fall in love. She falls in love with everything. With, As a default, yeah. With, with She has to concentrate when she kisses or else... She will give her heart away. She gives her heart away to everything and everyone, to the culture, to the skaters, to to Kate Bush. She loves it all. She loves it all. And and again, she's going to take a journey because of that. So,
0: yeah. The other two things to throw in, one is Fiona Apple name drops running up that hill on the title track to her album this year, which has been much acclaimed. Oh, really? She says... I grew up in the shoes they told me I could fill, shoes that were not made for, running up, not made for running up that
2: hill. And I need to run up that hill. I need to run up that hill. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I, will. And
0: I think Fiona Apple, first of all, fits into that, both in terms of musical influence, and she's talked about this in interviews and whatever. Musical influence, but also that sort of desire to not just form fit into what is expected of you, but to just grab out of life what you want. But then also if we, again, not to get too tendentious, but if you pull back the Humbert Humbert and Lolita kind of, she's obviously the victim of that book, but she kind of goes along for a long time without realizing from the perspective of Humbert Humbert himself Without expressing much agency or much, he ascribes to her that he she seduced him or whatever. But she was a kid who just kind of went along until at the end of the move or at the end of the book. At the risk of spoiling it for anybody who hasn't read, she...
2: <laughs> spoiling Lolita, Sorry, guys. already <laughs> <laughs> read it now.
0: <laughs> retakes her agency with a gun, and so yeah, I just think that's yeah, that's a really I never thought so much of. Why Kate Bush, you know, Kate Bush is also, I think Sean, you know better, but I think was pretty big on MTV at the time. And like you could have just just.
1: oh, I I remember watching that video in the mid 80s on MTV. It got tons of airplay. Yeah. That's, That's weird. That one in Cloud Busting. Cloud Busting was another one that which is which is off the same album, Pounds of Love. Look, I'm gonna I was gonna marry Kate Bush in the eighties, all right? I was gonna marry <laughs> her. Uh, she's I, an erotic I, force. She's an erotic spiritual force. She's yeah, un- that's what's. There's nothing like that.
2: There aren't. There aren't stars like that. That
1: well, like. You're right. You're absolutely right. She's 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 our generation's Stevie Nicks. She's a which again, it's no accident that Stevie Nicks makes an appearance on this on on the album as well. Yeah, she's she's an ethereal witch like spirit like force she's amused she's not amused because that would be condescending to the who kate bush is she's multifarious she's ah she's great yeah Yeah. one more thing on kate bush
2: which is that running up that hill when this came out in 2005 i was listening to it and i didn't know who kate bush was and it's like the musical shut this this fucking thing down, (laughs) dude i was i was just a dumb jock whatever i still am it's the, but it's the point is it's the musical opposite of the whole study in a lot of ways. It's not raw, it's very like, there's synthesizers and it's layer, it's, Strings. It's, it's more, the chord changes are fast, it's more complicated, it's like harder to learn and play and like and her voice is very powerful and sort of melodic in a way that Craig's fins could never really be. And so I just think it's, it just sticks out that much more that this reference is in here because it's like, where does that come from in the context of, of this whole thing And it? And then it's like this incredibly rich and deep counterpoint and sort of establishment of the
1: characters. So I just sort of like blown away by that. Cool. So I'm going to submit my, my favorite line or w- well, one of my many favorites, but the one that sort of like made me go, Oh, I see what you're doing here. It, it isn't even a song line. It's the opening. It's in the opening. She said, there's going to come of a time when I'm going to have to go with whoever's going to get me the highest. And of course, there are so many ways that you can take that. And when you first hear it, you're thinking, oh, yeah, she's going to go with some, again, another theme throughout Craig Finn's lyrics, some beautiful, you know, both spiritually and physically, physical woman being led down the the path of drugs and desiccation and and, depred, you know, and, and the, the evil. You know, it, He writes a number of songs with protection of the guy who's trying to protect some woman from that. So you could read it that way, but then of course there's the other way to read it, which is she's going to go with whoever's going to get her the highest. And by the end of the album, spoiler alert, she actually does. She wants to tell everyone how. A, can I can I tell your congregation how how a resurrection early feels that she's been spiritually and physically resurrected by by stumbling into the Easter mass and telling everybody, you know, I know what, I I know what it's like up there, right? I I've, I've gotten up on one of those things. I know what it's like up there. Yeah. So I, I love the sort of d- the ways you can read that line. And it provides, you know, it's just a great sort of precursor for what's to come. So, Dan, did did you want to talk about your line?
0: My line, which I think in 2020 especially feels relevant, is... Love the line. I used it as an epithet or as a interlude in an article I wrote at the time about going to a Franz Ferdinand death cap for cutie show on campus, and I just remember like it was just such a. It's a great line, but I think it's also interesting. We talked a little bit about this last season, and this is a song. The narrator, what, who is he, and where is he in this song? Because there's this. He's a character at the beginning because Holly's talking to him, but then he just kind of opines, right? Like, I like the guy who answers the door. It's not actually part of the chain of the story, and yet it fits that one as well. Both of those lines I really like. It's just just sort of asides or commentary that adds to... The lyrical plot, but also just great lines, great musical delivery, et cetera.
1: Yeah. You bring up two, two things that I think that, that I want to ask Mike about. I like the guy who always answers the door, he's got nothing but the number. And then your, your, your line here I like the crowds at the really big shows, people touching people that you don't even know. Mike, Catholic Mass, is there someone analogous to the guy who answers the door who has the number? Could that be a biblical verse? and at the end of mass if i've been i've been to a few my understanding is that you clasp hands with someone you greet someone you hug them right yeah but so are we seeing you know some elements some analogous elements of mass taking place
2: yeah so okay so the guy who always answers the door at every church at the beginning of every service there are greeters and ushers who welcome everyone in and they just say you know at the church I was going to before COVID, because believe it or not, I actually go to church as an adult. It's on North Capitol in Washington, D.C., St. Martin's Church. Yeah. Shout out to Father Kelly. The ushers and the greeters, they come in, they give you a hug, and they say, welcome, welcome, come on in, and then you go and you sit down. There's that. Don't they hand you a piece of paper? They do. Yes. Which has the numbers in the hymnal where you're going to sing, what songs you're going to sing, and it has the script of the mass, basically. Right. What psalm we're gonna sing the way Catholic works is like on any Sunday,
1: every church in the world is giving the same exploration of the Bible. I did not yeah hear it that. goes
2: so like there will be a first reading from the Old Testament. It always follows this structure: first reading from the Old Testament and then a psalm, and then a reading from I think there's two readings and then a gospel and the gospel is about Jesus. I forget whether the second reading is also from the older New Testament. Maybe it mixes, but whatever. You got the idea. So you got, And every church is doing the same exact passages from the Bible in the same order every week. The only difference is the sermon or the homily is called the homily, where the priest comes up with a way to contextualize the gospel and the readings for your, for your life and for your spiritual quest. So there is. Yeah, there is an aspect of coming into the door of a church and a numeric sort of regimented process that you embark on as soon as you as soon as you go in. And then crowds at the really big shows, there are different levels of this, but there is a ritual part of every single mass where you reach out to your neighbor and you shake hands and say peace be with you, you physically touch some other member of the church community every single time. It's it's an integral critical part of every mass. And in fact, at my church here, it takes like minutes and minutes because they actually go, everyone hugs every other, like makes the best effort they can to go around and physically embrace every single other member of the congregation until they start playing saxophone. And then you have to go back to your seats, but it takes like, it takes <laughs> like a, and leading up to that, we get into the aisle. And everyone joins hands with people next to them to recite the Lord's prayer. And then for the part that goes for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours forever and ever. You you raise your hands all together in unison, clasp together, which is like a very hold steady sort of feeling. Image yeah, yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And so. So, yeah, there's a very churchy and it's very systematic product and people touching people they don't even know. I hadn't thought of that, but it is. Absolutely, a part of the Catholic ritual. It's my favorite part of every Mass is to make a connection with someone that you don't know, and I mean, for a lot of Hold Steady fans, is for sure the connections that you make at the shows, moshing or just like dancing in the pit. You do you do rub up against people, and so yeah, it's like a really meaningful parallel,
1: Sean. Yeah, in in this one song, you can see the DNA of so much uh, about the Hold Steady lyrically musically culturally historically literarily i mean it's just it's all right there in in the in the dna of almost every line this is what made me fall in love with the band it's just it's just all these references coming together all these analogs coming together it's just again this is why this album changed my life for the most part so it's one of those Not to get over the skis, but like the more you talk
2: about it and the more you think about it, the richer it seems. I'll just say that that's unusual
1: in rock music.
0: Yeah, I've never, never would have put together what now seems profoundly obvious. Those the parallel between those lines and Catholic church procedures, that's mind blown. Mike, you had you said you had some little things you want to hit. Yeah, let's let's do a couple little like
2: dinky odds and ends now that we've sort of reached that great spot. The title Hornets Hornets is weird. I, it's it fits with this thing of like it makes total sense once you kind of know and have explored it that it is this it's this fight song for the Edina High School football team or whatever is called, titled Hornets Hornets. But when I first saw that on my, like, iPod or whatever, it's like Hornets. It's like a very weird title. Hornets. Horn, like, you just imagine someone shouting the word Hornets, like, out into the into the world. It made me think of the, the Wicker Man, the Nicolas Cage, like, not the bees, not the bees thing that they did on
1: Conan O'Brien. Yeah, I, I, I thought of those plague-like. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I thought, I actually Googled. Before our podcast, to make sure I had that right, whether hornets were one of the plagues, I don't think they the were. Eleventh plague, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <The hornets laughs> did, holy like, shit.
2: Plague six and what a half was
0: hornets. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the evolutionary locust, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah.
1: First we have locusts. Now there's hornets. What, what hornets, the hell? Jesus? You know, I searched that, but it's it's not there. But I that's that's how I read it, and it actually took me a while to figure out. Oh yeah, it's the mascot. Yeah, it's like, well, it anchors. I mean,
2: and then Nicolette in 66. Again, if you go on Genius, I think there's a risk of kind of there's a little bit of hyper specificity with some of the readings of the lyrics that and a little bit of literalness to them. But I do think that it's like very that the closing line is a high. And that there is an anchoring to place here. Nicolette in 66. We're very specific about where we are. And I think that That's something worth noting and that the opening track of separation Sunday is it made me rethink like, is this all take, I don't care for my personal experience of the songs. It doesn't matter to me that much, like whether it's all in suburban Minneapolis that all the action takes place, but it's just like something to think about.
0: This is the only track on the album. I think where the title does not get mentioned
1: every other track,
0: which I used to, I remember at this time, like, how do you come up with the names of songs
1: bastard you you close reading bastard well played nice
0: (laughs) yeah it's the only i i remember like you just discover bands habits with around that and yeah this is i didn't i don't remember how almost killed me plays out but every other track i'm either name drops the title or it's something like charlemagne's got something in his sweatpants so it's close enough enough, but yeah swish that's just it
2: so it's weird. It's I don't know. I don't know if I have anything else, but I did want to just note the title is weird and unusual. My second thing is just skaters. I wish there were more the skaters were around for like the rest. So I want to find out what happened with the skaters. Like they're they're like not in the rest of the I skateboarded in high school. So I was kind of like fire when I heard the song. I was like, oh, they're gonna be there are gonna be a lot of songs about skateboarding. It's gonna be rad. And then it just never materialized. So it turns into kind of like just a shorthand for like semi rebellious countercultural sort of grimy type of guys. And then the Bones Brigade video is like a cheesy vert eighties skateboarding. Like Tony Hawk is like the main guy in the Bones Brigade videos. And I just think that's, Another example of a reference in 2005 sort of had hitting a little different. It's not like he was talking about any contemporary skateboarders or any more recent skateboarders. It's kind of like a really anachronism to at least when the, when the album came out. But I just, I love skaters. Not enough songs about skaters. And uh, we got teased on that here, but it never really never really went anywhere.
1: So
0: any other last thoughts? Not really from my end. I I do
1: want to point out that the narrator of the song seems to be male and he's channeling Holly's voice, which I think is going to be important that he's talking to a third person talking about this hood rat chick named Holly, who was really into Hunt running up that hill. I think this is going to be important. This sort of like multi-voice narrating narration that occurs in this song and Throughout other songs as well on this album, so I just I think that's just something to point out. Or point forward, yeah, you just never know
2: exactly where the point of view is.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that that's something that that's Craig's literary bent coming out. That where in many cases novels are multi-voiced, even a first-person novel is multi-voiced, and that the narrator has to take over some things and direct your attention in certain ways. So there never is just one voice. Even in uh, in Moby Dick, Call Me Ishmael, even that the that the narrator of that novel, the Overmind, the, over of, the of, of that novel, focuses your at- attention on other aspects that the first person narrator couldn't or wouldn't wouldn't know or couldn't explain as well as the Overmind of that area. So it's again, this is another way in which this you know that Craig Finn is a lyricist and the band in General is highly literary. It's peppered throughout. This album is peppered throughout the previous album. It'll continue to be peppered throughout Holster and the lyrics until, until the band is no more. So. Um. Okay. Well, thank you all for joining us. Our next episode is coming up next week. And that's where we're going to take a deeper dive into cattle and the creeping things again, season two of a positive jam. focusing on
0: separation Sunday. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to A Positive Jam. If you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Get in touch with us on Twitter, at Sean Westfall, at M. Brooks Taylor, at Daniel Shortman, or at Shortman Studios, and email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. If you want to join the show or want us to cover any topics, let us know. See you next week.